Chelsea Fairless, and welcome to another slightly somber episode of Every Outfit. I mean, I don't really think we can escape the doom and gloom because, as you all know, we've lost someone very special this week. I am, of course, talking about Willie Garson, who played Stanford Blatch, a fucking legend. He died at the age of 57 after a battle with pancreatic cancer, so... Fuck cancer once again. Fuck cancer. 57 is is way too young. And it's just, it's so surreal because it feels like just yesterday we were looking at paparazzi photos of him filming in just like that. He was a character that meant a lot to so many people. There were a lot of beautiful tributes from fans, obviously his family, his cast and crew family. I was particularly touched by his son's post about him. Yeah, his son's was really, really sad, as was Sarah Jessica Parker's. Sarah Jessica Parker is is up there with the, the sadness level for sure. Because they were friends for 30 years. They went on a, a date once. That's how they met each other. Yeah. Quite like how I imagine Stanford and Carrie probably <laughs> met each other. Totally, totally. It's just, it sucks. It, it's It's hard to imagine... The show without him, I mean, he was just, he brought such a beautiful vulnerability to that character that I think a lot of people could connect with. I, you know, and I would like to say, I know that like identifying as a Stanford like really isn't a thing, but I would like to see, I would like to see people reclaim that in the same way that we've attempted to reclaim identifying as a Miranda. I think that Stanford is an equally underrated and fabulous character. Stanford Strong. <laughs> Hashtag Stanford Strong. Join us, our, our fellow Stanford Strongies. Well, and people always said, like, well, Stanford's a bit of a gay stereotype. Like, is it this borderline offensive? But also it's like, I know several people that are pretty similar to Stanford Blatch, and I don't think it's a diss. He's just, like, a fabulous, effeminate person that likes Liberty Prince. Like, so sue him. Yeah, and I really don't think you can stay, say that when Mario Cantone's Anthony <laughs> exists in the show either. Anyway, the episode that you're about to hear, we actually recorded a couple of weeks ago because I went on vacation, but we felt like we couldn't post this episode without doing a little tribute to Stanford. The episode you're about to hear is Splat. It was actually Stanford's last appearance in the series. This is purely coincidental. Yeah, the last time he was actually on screen was Lexi Featherston's funeral, eerily enough. He was so fabulous in this episode. This performance, thankfully, will live on, and we dedicate this episode to the most fabulous, Willie Garson. Rest in peace, and without further ado, the episode. Hi, my name is Chelsea Fairless. Hi, I'm Lauren Caroni, and I have a cocktail in my hand, if you can hear that. <laughs> I could hear the ice clinking. And welcome to yet another Every Outfit on an episode of Sex and the City. Yes, today we're talking about a truly iconic episode. I know we use that, we overuse that word, but truly. Truly iconic. The third to last episode of the series, which is Splat. 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 And this episode is so great because from the title, you immediately know which episode it is. It's not ambiguous at all. What shocked me about this episode is how much 
is in this episode. It's like, oh, right, that thing and that thing and that thing. Yeah, it's amazing. They really packed it all in. And this episode was written by Jenny Bix and Cindy Shupak, who have been in the Sex and the City writer's room since the beginning. I listened to the commentary track with Michael Patrick (laughs) King. Not sure why Jenny Bix and Cindy Shupak aren't on the commentary track, but Daddy MPK. Did he spill the tea? I mean, very lukewarm tea. He said that this is the first, well, it's their last episode of the series, which when you start to think about that, like in the commentary, he's like, oh, this was Stanford's last scene that he shot. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. The dinner party scene? The funeral scene. Yeah, they say the dinner party, but who who knows what order it was shot. Anyway, Daddy MPK said that this was the first episode that Jenny Bix and Cindy Shupak ever wrote together. Wow. They always wrote episodes separately. You would know Jenny Bix from episodes like Boy Girl, Boy Girl, which would be the infamous bisexual episode. Okay, don't do her dirty like that. Jenny Bix like wrote the best episodes. Let's she- not bring up one of the most <laughs> problematic ones to shame her. Sorry, she also wrote Sex and another city which is one of the la episodes cindy shupek wrote are we sluts iconic she also wrote just say yes which is the episode where aiden proposes to carrie she also wrote all the glitters which is when they go to the gay club with right. the Mar- and bungalow eight right yeah it's the same app so this episode starts with enid yeah, with lunch with enid which we did a post about carrie's chloe outfit but i again Forgot this is how this episode began. Yeah, Enid is wanting to meet with Carrie because she's throwing a very chic party for some documentarians in her fabulous New York apartment. And she wants, she's enlisting Carrie to not only bring her sort of A-list art world boyfriend to the shindig, but to bring a friend for her because she's single and... She wants Carrie to fix her up with someone. Yeah, the through line of the episode, which begins here, whether it's right or wrong, is basically like, Carrie, if you don't go to Paris with the Russian, you could end up like Enid, which is like, what is wrong with that? Yeah, what's wrong with Enid's life? Have you seen Enid's apartment? It's fabulous. I didn't realize that. I guess this is the first time she's seen since she appeared in season four. Because hmm. she says, it's my former editor at Vogue, which it's like, did Carrie just stop writing for Vogue? <laughs> also, I feel that we should mention, it's very fitting that Candace Bergen is playing a Vogue editor because she was a massively successful model in the 60s. And then when her acting career started to pop off in the mid to late 60s, they just kind of kept putting her on the cover of American Vogue like over and over, like Blake Lively, basically. <laughs> We should also mention that she was also on British Vogue and Paris Vogue. Like, she, she's she been on every fucking Vogue that exists. Ledge. So it's fitting that she became an editor at Vogue. Yes. And also, Michael Patrick King worked with Candace. I also realized, I was like, oh, Candace Berg and Candace Bushnell. Yeah. Um, but CBs. CBs. Both, both Vogue employees, I guess, in some sense. Candace used to write for Vogue. Yeah, but Michael Patrick King first worked with Candace Bergen on Murphy Brown. The more you know. But I think the most iconic quote in this scene is this. Please never mention this conversation to anyone at Condé Nast. Which is, well, maybe we're jumping ahead, but she's set up with someone who works for Bon Appetit, which is a Condé Nast. <laughs> is also That's under true. the Condé Nast fold. So. It's like, surely she's seen Wallace Shawn in the elevator <laughs> once or twice. 
Is this maybe the hardest ask ever? Because it's not an ask. It's kind of an ultimatum because Enid says to Carrie, I got you a job at Vogue. You can get me a date. Fair enough, right? Also, it's not like she's setting some poor guy up with some fucking swamp monster. Like, this is a very hot woman. Fair enough. The next scene is Carrie and Alexander Petrovsky. He has a new exhibition opening in Paris, and he invites Carrie to go with him, not just for the opening, but to live. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction that he says, I need you there versus I want you there. Yeah. But it's like, I don't know if you want someone who needs you there. I think you want someone who wants you there. Right. This will become important in the next two episodes. So they're getting ready to host a dinner party at Alexander Petrovsky's fabulous apartment. The squad shows up with all of their significant others in tow, which is a really rare occurrence, right? Like, apart from this, we didn't really see this until the films. Well, as she says in the previous scene, because she does ask Petrovsky for a, a date recommendation for Enid, which again, presumably Enid and Petrovsky would have known each other because I find Enid would have gone to Studio 54. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we had to wait six seasons for the couples to be together because I think the last group activity is maybe that wedding of Miranda's interior designer in season two. I can't think of... Or there's a scene where... Well, I guess the wedding of Charlotte... Right, and Harry. But as Carrie notes in the previous scene, when she's hitting up Petrovsky for a date recommendation, she's never been able to say before that all of her friends are in relationships. So we have Samantha and Smith Jared, who's looking very hot with his buzzed head. We have Stanford and Marcus, truly shocking that they even got invited to this (laughs) at all. Miranda and Steve, of course, and Charlotte and Harry. Samantha is very much the star of this scene, not solely because of her hilarious story about her housekeeper using her vibrator, but because she has had like a full Bob Mackie makeover for this scene. Like she's giving us post Sunny Bono share show energy with this look. Yeah, I love that she says, my maid stole my vibrator. It was in the kitchen, to which Charlotte or Miranda asked, why was it in the kitchen? And Samantha goes, I like to mix it up. Instead of like, I live in a studio. My kitchen is my living room is my bedroom. What's I'm just fucking everywhere. Like, uh, I mean, it's also, she has a very xenophobic explanation uh, as to why her housekeeper is using her vibrator, which is, she says something to the effect of like, maybe in other republics, people like to share vibrators, but this is America, land of the plenty. The phrase other republics. Yikes. Anyway, it's safe to say that the Russian is horrified by Samantha's graphic tale of masturbating in her kitchen, although he is dating a sex columnist, right? At this point, I think they've rebranded Carrie in the show as like a love and relationship columnist. Right. Michael Patrick King said that already he felt that the audience had subconsciously already made their pick about Petrovsky, whether they liked him or not. And so if they didn't, they wanted people to point to this scene as evidence of like, this is why Carrie shouldn't be with him. Right. Well, they succeeded. He comes across as being very pretentious, especially after 
Steve compliments him on his grand piano and asks him if he knows any Billy Joel. And Carrie visibly winces in this moment because she knows that Petrovsky is a pretentious asshole. And this awkward exchange only highlights this class divide between Steve and Alexander, right? Yeah. What I also found interesting about this scene and something in the kind of postmortem about the show that we talk about is the fact that it's classist. But it's interesting to see this group of New York who come from all different backgrounds, working class, upper class, who are bonded against a European <laughs> because they are New Yorkers. That seems to cut every divide. It's like, no, no, no. Ageism, classism, racism, no. <laughs> if you're a New Yorker... And well, and Harry is basically like, fuck Paris. <laughs> French people are fucking assholes. I never, it's pretty rude. I never understood. What does he mean about what's with the toilet paper? Is it only one ply in Europe? Is that what you say? I don't know. Someone, someone report back on that. But I do maintain that even though Alexander Petrovsky is pretentious, I still think he knows who Billy Joel is, right? I'm sure he partied with him at Studio 54. I mean, I'm sure that he would be into like maybe early Billy Joel, like he's jamming out to Vienna or something, or fucking even late era Billy Joel. It's a solid joke, and it does make the audience hate Petrovsky. Even though I don't care for Billy Joel, but... Also, is this the first time we hear the phrase large-scale light installations integrated with video imagery? Yes, it is. And this is because Charlotte asks Petrovsky about, you know, how are your sculptures going or whatever. She knows she's work- he's working on this big museum show in Paris. And it's not like she doesn't have art world bona fides. She was a gallerist for 15, 20 years. Totally. Um, and then Carrie, again, sensing that Petrovsky is like, offended that she said you know how are the sculptures going she's like um actually he doesn't make sculptures he makes they're uh large-scale light installations integrated with video imaging so now i'm imagining him as very very much as a james terrell maybe with a dash of a tony orsler or something like that that's what i imagine as well so my question for you that i was thinking about with this scene is should your significant other get along or be able to hang with your friends? Like, is that a prerequisite for someone that you want to spend your life with? A thousand percent. Yeah, I I can't. There's am- no, who would say no to that? Only people that are in those kind of toxic, <laughs> yeah. dark relationships where they have to separate their friends from their, you know, husband, wife, what have you. That's a, a deal breaker for me, for sure. That's we're putting our stamp on that. That's an every outfit red flag. If you're in a relationship and you need to keep your significant other away from your friend group. But we're also on the side of we don't believe in people that drop their friend groups when they get into relationships. That's also a big red no, flag those for are, us. Yeah, terrible bitches do Wh- that. Which is what Carrie has done. Remember, they're all at the diner and they think something terrible has happened to her. And she's yeah. like, oh, no, it just was too hard to get downtown. Which is like, doesn't he live downtown whatever well also rude because miranda's commuting from From brooklyn Brooklyn, which is just anyway so after dinner they uh retire to the upstairs loft of petrovsky's apartment and they grill her with all of these questions to which she has oh because during this dinner he's mentioned that carrie's coming to paris with her such a dish move he knows what he's doing it was manipulative and she has to backtrack like oh i've been invited it's exciting you know i might go now the girls have their first opportunity to suss out the situation basically be like what the fuck i'm sure body language experts could tell that miranda is very displeased by this 
Again, Michael Patrick King says that, that there's a shot in the dinner party scene of Miranda, a quick insert of Cynthia Nixon clocking Carrie's reaction when he says, oh, she's going to come to Paris to live? Because he sort of he bulldozes her when he says that point, and he knows what he's doing. Yeah, a thousand percent. One thing that's that I thought was funny was that Stanford then pops up and is like, enough girl talk. Like, I can't hang with these straight men anymore. But then it's like, you left Marcus down there yeah. with those guys? That's so fucking rude. So now Marcus has to hang with Petrovsky, Steve, Harry. Like, what a nightmare. I mean, they do ask because there's a wild laughter at one point downstairs and they go, what are they doing down there? Certainly not a Billy Joel sing-along. <laughs> Yeah, I, honestly, when the when the girls went upstairs, they should have been like, and Stanford and Marcus, of course, come up with us. Yeah. So afterwards, when the ladies leave, she grills Petrovsky about like, well, what am I going to do? Where are we going to live? What, what am I going to do with my apartment? To which he says, I'll just pay for your apartment, which like hot and nice. But what is he referring to? Is it her mortgage? When you buy into I a guess, when you yeah. buy into a co-op, is she? Still paying rent? Well, she's is paying it... maintenance fees. I guess. So Which she... are like, that's rent. That's, you know. I guess. Then they go to the, the diner scene the next morning. So it's kind of the same thing. You know, everyone's grilling Carrie. What do you mean you're moving to Paris? What about your column? What about your job? What are you going to, you know, all of that stuff. And Carrie gives them answers, but no one's really satisfied by those answers, right? And Carrie becomes exasperated and feels that the squad isn't really supporting her in this moment. I think what makes this episode so excellent is everyone's points are equally weighted. Everything feels pretty grounded. I understand why Carrie is annoyed with them. It's like, I got you all of your answers. Why is it still not good enough? And also, for all of your life decisions, I supported you. I didn't ask 15 million questions, mostly because I was still asking you about what I should do with Mr. Big in my life during those times. (laughs) (laughs) Also, we should mention, I mean, Samantha's look in this scene is major. She's having like a full Cavalli chemo moment with the clashing animal prints and the headscarf and the hat over the headscarf. I always say that Samantha's cancer looks are the best of the entire series, and I stand by that. She looks amazing in this entire episode. I don't know if you noticed, but in one of the wide shots, Carrie's full outfit is like a green long sleeve shirt and this knitted, almost Rodarte, predates yeah. Rodarte's existence, kind of knit sweater. And then in the wide shot, you see she's wearing a long pink silk skirt, which... I don't know how I feel about that silhouette, especially in the wintertime. I think it's fabulous. You got to keep your legs warm. That's true. Well, we're certainly seeing in Carrie's outfits in this, and just like that paparazzi photos, they seem to be following a very similar silhouette as well. She's keeping those slim pins toasty in those maxi skirts. So then we get the Carrie voiceover of the episode. I mean, maybe one of the most ludicrous, which is something to the effect of all girl talk and no girl action, which I'm like, surely, you know, we could have done maybe something like, has all this girl talk made us incapable of walking the walk? You know what I'm saying? You've like turned into a bot just churning (laughs) out these fake Carrie. Yeah, you know how they make a AI watch a thousand hours of action films and then write an action film? That's just me, but I'm I'm the AI. That's how they made Sex in the City too. Yeah. Well, it's quite the existential quandary. She her question is, is it time we stop questioning? But then she writes a question mark and then she deletes the question mark and it just becomes a period. 
Also, Carrie drinks a Pepsi in this episode, like in the establishing shot where they push in, she has a Pepsi on the ground, which is like egregious product placement. But I spent the entire scene just being like, would Carrie drink a Pepsi? Would it be a diet Pepsi? She'd drink a diet Coke. Coke, yeah. Let's be real. So is the next scene Elizabeth Taylor's weight gain? Uh, yes. I legit forgot what Charlotte's storyline was for the episode. I It's a very Carrie-heavy episode. And if you'll notice, like, Samantha really doesn't have a storyline in this episode. She's just kind of there to hype up. Uh, her storyline is her fabulous outfits. That's very true. And her cancer wigs. Her yeah. ever And her just chiming in with a cancer joke here and there. But kind of the B or C storyline is the fact that Charlotte's dog, who previously was gangbanged in an episode at a dog park, is pregnant. Uh, which, of course, upsets Charlotte because she's reproductively challenged. Yes. Is that the politically correct term? I'm sure we're going to get DMs about how we're wrong. Yeah. So she notices the dog has gained weight, so she takes it to the pet store. Well, Harry says, someone's gotten chunky. She's like, Harry? Which is like, it's Harry. Why would he call you fat, Charlotte? What? <laughs> All you eat is tasty delight. <laughs> But she immediately, I mean, this is this is a storyline that would never exist today because it's, I guess, fat phobic against dogs. She immediately wants to put the dog on uh, weight watching diet food. I don't know if that's fat phobic. Like if your dog is severely overweight, you're just like you're feeding it too much. I guess I don't know what the appropriate weight for a King Charles Cavalier is. but So she takes it to the pet store and she's like, my dog is fucking fat. And the guy's like, oh, she's not fat. And she's like, oh, sorry, that's such an ugly word. I meant full figured. So now Elizabeth Taylor is full figured. But of course, the guy interjects and is like, she's not fat. She's pregnant. Dun, dun, dun. If there were commercials, that would be a commercial break. And then there's yet another scene. Because I agree with you. It feels like the episode would just be dinner party, Enid's party, funeral. But like, there's a lot of scenes in this episode. One of which is that Carrie and Samantha are at a bookstore for some reason. Yeah, and Samantha looks like how I imagine Kris Jenner looked in the late 90s. <laughs> I was going to say, that's being very generous and fashion forward. I would say late 80s. Yeah. It's more like of a low-key look for her, you know? That's true. But Samantha's with the real talk about Petrovsky. He's a bit arrogant, but he has the goods to back it up. And of course, Carrie cannot shut the fuck up about what Miranda thinks about Petrovsky, to which Samantha finally interjects and is like, hey, 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 do you see me asking you about what you think about my younger boyfriend? No, because I don't give a fuck. Why do you care about what Miranda says? Yeah. And the ellipses being, unless you feel like what Miranda is saying is true. Yeah, that's why you care, obviously. Now Petrovsky and Carrie are getting ready to go out to Enid's soiree. She is wearing a rhinestone and velvet Marc Jacobs flapper dress. It's giving me I'm making gin in my bathtub vibes. And basically he gives her an ultimatum, right? Which is I don't want to do long distance relationship. I'm over New York. It's like come with me or we're done. It's nicer than that. She seems to be in the bargaining stage of her own like (laughs) grief of leaving New York, which is like, well, maybe, you know, you could go there. I could be here or... It is quite the quandary. What do you do when your significant other is just, quote, done with the city you currently live in? Yeah. 
So now they have to go to Enid's party. They bring Wallace Shawn, who plays the food critic from Bon Appetit. Which, as I previously said, wouldn't she know him from the Condé Nast commissary? Well, we know that Candace Bergen knows him because they've worked together three times, to my knowledge. He was a guest star on Murphy Brown. Yeah. Then there was this. And then she was also set up with him on a blind date in the iconic film Book Club. I'll put iconic in quotes. <laughs> Look, we each have our objectionable later Diane Keaton rom-com film. What is yours? Like, something's got to give? No, you know what it is and you hate it because I said I so. I hate because I said so. But did you know that because I said so is probably my least favorite movie and Heather's is probably my favorite movie and somehow they have the same director. Like, it, it makes no sense. <laughs> uh, if um, only you had said they had the same writer. <laughs> Kind of rude that Candace Bergen keeps getting set up with Wallace Shawn. Does, not, not to be how does looksist. Looksist. <laughs> also, I do want to say that once I saw Wallace Shawn in a giant puffer coat in front of me at Citibank, and I was like, oh, New York. Now, did he turn around or did you only see him from the back? Because there's a lot of Wallace Shawn shaped people from the back. No, no, no. I saw his full face. And it was dramatic because it was a really big coat. It could have been like a Craig Green puffer jacket or something. It was it was nuts. So according to Michael Patrick King, they felt that they had to present Carrie's worst nightmare, his words, which is if she stays in New York and remains single, no matter how fabulous or successful she is, she's going to be stuck with a Wallace Shawn, which is like rude. So rude. Like what a lovely man. God. So now... We meet the iconic Lexi Featherston as played by Kristen Johnson, not to be confused with Jennifer Coolidge, who a lot of followers of our account can't figure out the difference between them, which is also rude. Yeah, we recently did a post about Jennifer Coolidge's insane bag hobbyist character in one episode earlier in this season. And people were like, oh, R.I.P. And I was like, did Jennifer Coolidge didn't die. And then I realized they were confusing her with Kristen Johnson's character. Get your 50-something <laughs> blonde character actresses straight people. So Lexi is described as an 80s-era it girl who's now over 40 or close to it. This was rumored to be based on Amy Sacco. Is that how you say her name? I think so. Sacco? Amy Sacco. Sacco. I don't know. Although Jenny Bix denies this, there's this amazing oral history of this episode that The Cut published that we will link to in the show notes. And in this, I think Jenny is like, no, it wasn't based on Amy Sacco. They're both just really tall. She was like, it's just as much based on Candace Bushnell, which is so fucking rude. Yeah, because then in the interview, it immediately cuts to Bushnell, which obviously they're doing these interviews separate and then kind of editing them all together. And Bushnell goes, I hope not. But in the 80s, we all had our moments. <laughs> so Enid and Petrovsky are getting cozy on the couch. And uh, honestly, why shouldn't they? This this is a couple that makes sense, right? I, I, yeah, and we, we also did a post, which maybe we'll link to in the show notes, where we were like couples that didn't happen on the show, but absolutely make sense. And Enid and Petrovsky was definitely one of them. 
Enid's basically to carry like, I love this man. And then she scolds her for infringing on her turf. Basically scolds her for taking like one of the few over 50 eligible bachelors in New York that are in her league and snatching him away from her. This is sort of like when women who are cheated on blame the the woman instead of, you know, the man they're with or married to, which is like, where is Petrovsky's fault in the fact that he's obviously consistently dating younger women? women totally and like while Enid may have a point that's something you think about not something you confront someone with I guess so there's a few scenes that are intercut with the party one of which is Miranda and Steve going to bed to which I understand at this point they have a toddler but like what time are they going to bed this is concurrent with Enid's party is this like 8 p.m is this Enid's party starts at 7 All right. But in the scene with Miranda and Steve, basically it's Miranda's aria about why is Carrie with this person, which, you know, I I would say the main love story of this show is probably Carrie and Miranda, not Carrie and Big. Yeah, she has a reason to dislike Petrovsky, but the reality of the situation is she can't handle the idea of Carrie leaving New York and leaving her. Yeah, of someone else moving on, to which... I didn't realize how self-aware Steve was. This is probably like one of the only moments they show Steve. <laughs> so it's so true. On top of it. But he says to Miranda, you didn't think I was good enough for you. And she's like, that's not true. And he's like, you know, I knew I'd prove you wrong. Or he goes, I knew you would come around, which is like the way he says that. And I've never been attracted to Steve, but there was something about the way he said it that it didn't come off arrogant. There was just this like relaxed confidence that I was like, God damn. Yeah, now I get it. I get it. That was a good moment for Steve. I mean, but really Miranda was just trying to force Steve, who's a very nice person, to talk shit about Alexander Petrovsky with her. And he refused. He's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. He's pretentious. He's a little pretentious. And she's like, thank you. (laughs) I love Cynthia's delivery of the line. I bet she doesn't go to Paris. Because it's said in the way that you do when you know you're wrong and it's not true. Yeah. You're just trying to like will it into existence. Totally. Yeah. Brilliant acting by Cynthia in this episode overall. Then we cut back to after Enid's rough take of Carrie's dating life. She's got to escape to the bathroom and she finds Lexi Featherston doing lines of coke by herself. And she very rudely says like, oh, do people still do coke? Which is like something you can say, but not to someone who's in the process of doing coke, right? That's so rude. Also, it's such a misnomer. Cocaine has never gone out of style. Yeah. And like, let's face it, like Carrie would do a bump with Stanford here and there. Samantha would always have coke if this was like a real, if this was real life. Well, the fact that they even show Lexi doing cocaine. Well, they also showed Big's model girlfriend doing cocaine. They're very judgy. In a way, it's like this episode is a bit of Carrie is visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. (laughs) Well, totally, because I think Enid and Lexi both represent two versions of herself. Enid is the version of her that's very like career focused, wants to succeed. Enid is now grappling with the realities of being a workaholic and in being older and not being able to find a guy that's in her league. And then Lexi represents the it girl, the party girl, and what that looks like when the party never stops. Uh, yeah, basically what the show is telling us is it doesn't matter how successful you are, or how <laughs> messy you are, if you're single... You have no cultural value. It's true. Like, you you need a man. Like, you best go to Paris. (laughs) 
if anyone invites you because to to be a single woman in New York over the age of 40 is just a humiliation to which uh, nothing compares yeah which is funny because only a few years later will the Real Housewives franchise begin and has I feel like shown women of a certain age of women in their later 40s and 50s being single fucking young guys like there's a new pathway also you look at Jennifer Aniston or Charlize Theron and Sandra Bullock like it's more likely that A-list actresses now who are of that scary Carrie age in this episode are just single and doing it on their own yeah but God forbid we explore what may be wrong with men that lead successful women to make these decisions. But whatever. Yeah, no, we'll never go there. There's nothing wrong with men. So Lexi is distraught because it's snowing outside and she can't smoke indoors. Which I guess they're also making the point, which was a very Sex in the City thing, which we've gotten into before. They did this in the LA episode that no one smokes. And I guess their comment about New York these days is no one smokes either, which again has never been true. <laughs> No. When Wallace Shawn tries to prevent her from smoking out the window, she utters like the best diss ever, which is fucking geriatrics. <laughs> I need to use this in my day to day life. But against like Gen Z. <laughs> It's just really, it just really lands. And then she launches into one of the most iconic monologues in the history of television. When did everybody stop smoking? What did everybody pair off? This used to be the most exciting city in the world, and now it's nothing but smoking near a fucking open window. New York is over. O-V-E-R. Over. No one's fun anymore. Whatever happened to fun? I'm so bored I could die. We've now seen Lexi Featherston die 10,000 times, but I remember being shocked by it when I first saw this episode. So in the commentary, Michael Patrick King says that they came up with this idea a year before it showed up in the show. It was an idea that was in the writer's room and they all started laughing and then half the writers were like, we can't do that. That's so tragic. You can't make that funny. And then it was Michael Patrick King, Jenny Bix and Cindy Schupacher were like, oh, we are going to make that funny. Well, yeah, Kristen Johnson is incredible in this. This is like one of the best things ever. And also just the choreography of it. Very specific. The way that you see the shoe twist and you see her grab onto the curtain. It, it's comedic, but it's also highly realistic. And in the oral history, Michael Patrick King says that years ago, he went to a party of someone that lived on the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, who had windows like that. Because I was more shocked by like, who has windows in New York that actually open? Aren't they all suicide-proof now? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I've, I've seen windows like that. After this, all there was a new ordinance. All the windows mm. need to be Lexi Featherstein'd. Yeah, you could only move them up like one inch, like the windows at Parsons. <laughs> Do you remember that? Uh, you couldn't open windows, Lauren. Well, but yeah, they were like New York hotels, too. <laughs> Let me tell you, it got very sweaty on in the Parsons floor we were on. Very musty. So when there's death, there is also birth. Was Lexi Featherston reincarnated as one of Elizabeth Taylor York Goldenblatt's puppies? 
Very interesting. Yeah, I don't know what the gestation period of puppies are, but... I think the soul just traveled... I mean, they were both uptown, right? Just a few blocks. That's true. I just meant the dog itself seemed to be pregnant for about two minutes and then gave birth. I have mild tea about that, which is Michael Patrick King says that he knew he wanted to show newborn King Cavalier Spaniels, but their pet wrangler was like, we cannot find any. You're going to have to show ones that are a couple months old. And then the night before they shot, the pet wrangler who also ran a pet sanctuary said that someone dropped off three newborns in the mailbox. That's why you only see three in that age. Okay, that's so, that seems like inhumane, right? What do you mean drop them off in the mailbox? Look, newborn puppies? I'm using the words Michael Patrick King said. (laughs) I also had these questions. I'm like, what do you mean mailbox? In the end of the series, we see those dogs running, Charlotte and Harry are running across the the boulevard with them. But like, what do we think happened to those puppies afterwards? Well, it's also astonishing that they would be purebred King Charles Cavaliers. As you previously mentioned, Elizabeth Taylor was fucked by like 20 different random dogs at the dog park. I think Charlotte says at a certain point, we have to raise her trampy mutts. (laughs) Um, Again, just classist. So now we're at Lexi's funeral. Everyone's turning out some wonderful all-black looks. Question for you. I get why Carrie, Stanford, and Samantha are at this funeral, but why are Charlotte and Miranda? I don't know. Maybe they they all had their moments downtown at area in the 80s, you know? I guess so. I like when they're talking about Lexi and they're like, remember, she was the ultimate 80s it girl. And Samantha's like, I thought I was the it girl. I love thinking about these it girl origin stories because I'm like, what kind of it girl are they? I'm imagining Lexi Featherston as like a young Debbie Mazar. Like, I like to think that she was really, really cool. For those who, because other than us, who else would know Debbie Mazur's origin story? She was a makeup artist who became friends with Madonna in the earliest of early days. I'm sure a lot of people are aware that this happened. Okay, but we get a lot of DMs of people being like, what are you guys talking about? Yeah, and I think Samantha was more of like a Diane Brill type. Like, I think she's in like a Mugler corset. Yeah, you know what Samantha certainly isn't? As portrayed in the Sex and the City 2 opening, which is a bouncer at CBGB's. A bartender. A bartender. I'd love if she was a bouncer, though. I fucking think not. Before the funeral, Carrie finally tells them, right? Because she, there's a montage after. Lexi goes out the window and before the funeral of which there's a snowstorm in New York. And that is when Carrie goes, okay, I'll go to Paris with you. And so before the funeral, she tells them she's going to go to Paris. And I love that the bridge too far for Samantha, Kim Petral does a great reaction, is when Carrie says she quit her job. Like, that's a bridge too far for Samantha. She's like, go away with this man. But like, what are we doing quitting our job here? She doesn't (laughs) say that, but she's saying that with her eyes. Yes, and with her platinum wig. And then they go inside because Stanford has saved them seats next to Hugh Jackman. Amazing 2004 reference, amazing 2021 reference for a New York power uh, funeral. (laughs) So after the funeral, Miranda and Carrie are, I don't know, walking home together, chit-chatting, whatever. They're going to go to a diner. And how dare they not say the diner is Veselka? Because they are in the <laughs> church in the East Village on 2nd and 9th, 10th? It's between 9th and 10th. Yes. Of course, Miranda brings it back to Paris. What the fuck are you doing with your life? And we get one of the most amazing scenes between these two actors. 
I mean, we haven't seen them fight like this since the end of season three when Miranda yells at Carrie at the thrift store when she's like, I'm going to go see Big. And she's like, you're, you're an idiot. You're a victim. You always go back to him, which is like, I Fair mean, point, yeah. The fights between these two are always the best one because they're the two characters that I feel like the audience are the most invested in, but their fights are always equally weighted. I feel yeah. like, especially in this one, you understand Miranda's point, you understand Carrie's point. Right. Well, because basically everyone has been on one side or the other of this situation, right? Your friend is dating someone that you can't stand. Right. Or you're dating someone who your friends can't stand. And and that's just like, I think that's why this scene is so satisfying because often in those situations, no one really says at anything, you know, like everyone just, you know, because you can't say like, I hate your boyfriend because then your friend remembers that. And holds it against you, you know? It's interesting that no one makes the point that it's like, hey, Carrie, um, you and Petrovsky don't seem very well matched, like, at all. You don't seem very compatible. Maybe that's why you shouldn't give up your entire life. Well, yeah, because I would be too rude to say to anyone. Well, yeah, Carrie says, because Miranda points to the fact that she gave up her column, and she's like, you are your column. And she said, it's not who I am, it's what I do. I think that's fair. I mean... Miranda is such a workaholic that she conflates her job with her identity and is now trying to impose that on Carrie, right? Like, yeah, but I'm not Carrie's... saying that Carrie's in the wrong for quitting her job, but it's not who she is. Carrie's column is about her entire life. It is who she is. I'm just saying, I think there's more important things in life than what you do. And I, I side with Carrie on, on that. Well, I side with Carrie in the sense that she can pick up jobs. She can write for Paris Vogue. She, she can... could write a novel. Well, you know, so that's my other point, which maybe this is a good segue to get into, which is if Carrie was smart, she would have pulled in Elizabeth Gilbert and pre-sold the rights to her moving to Paris right. as a sort of eat, pray, love style book. Totally. For those who don't know, and I'm sure women who went on Eat, Pray, Love style trips afterwards became painfully aware, Elizabeth Gilbert was able to fund that year away where she went to all those places because she sold it as a book before she ever left. Genius. Also, an article she wrote in the early 90s inspired the film Coyote Ugly. <laughs> yeah, that that's the message we truly... If you take nothing else away from this episode, I hope it's that. That Elizabeth Gilbert once wrote. <laughs> Elizabeth Gilbert was the Piper Parabo in Coyote Ugly. She was. She worked there. And the weirdest thing is when I moved to the East Village, there is a Coyote Ugly, or at least there was, on First Avenue. And it's the grossest bar ever. Is it still there? Someone tell us. If it is, don't go there. Go to Flaming Saddles in Midtown instead. You'll have a much better experience. Anyway, back to the Miranda Carey fight. Again, you know, we press the uh, the rhetoric of fucking Carey, but she is, she makes a lot of solid points, which is you want me to be the vision you, you've always had of me, of like, everyone else can move on with their lives, but you need me to stay single and in the city and doing what I've always done. Yeah, that's fair of her to say. I mean, I think the most cutting thing that Miranda says is... Yeah, Carrie says, I can stay here and write about my life or I can go with him and live my life. To which Miranda responds, you mean his life, which is like... Ooh. Ooh, but it's like, yeah, you you did that, Miranda. That, that's a fair point to be made. It's all for the show. If you're listening to this, you follow our account, you've seen the show already, you know what they're driving towards. Right. I wanted to make this point earlier, but it's like 
Isn't it weird that Carrie's just never gone to Paris on her own? Look, I get it. Budget at the time can't afford to shoot in Paris. Just tell me between season four and five or five and six of like, you went to Paris for a week. Well, also, it's like she's been to San Francisco. Like Paris, too, is only six hours away. Like it's not like going to fucking Timbuktu or something. I know. Again, I understand for the the poetic license you needed him to invite her to Paris and big come to Paris. And yeah, because all- this is a callback to the strife that she had with Big, right? Like the, who the- didn't invite her to Paris. Which now that she's gone to Paris, maybe he was right. She doesn't like it. <laughs> she hates it. What would you give if they went back and then just like that to Paris, season two? Well, it's also like, no wonder you hate it. You left your fucking laptop (laughs) in New York. Who the fuck does that? You're a writer. So you're just like not writing? Don't writers go to Paris to like fuck and drink wine and get inspired and write? Absolutely. And there is a weird abdication that Carrie has had with her career which is by now if there was a person of similar clout one she would have written a tv pilot or a film or did punch-up work or certainly wrote a book at the very some high-end copywriting you know yeah right avatorial copy at the very least have at least a few gigs going on at magazines yeah Again, I understand why they need it for the show, but in the world of Sex and the City, Carrie can find employment elsewhere. Yeah, for sure. So Carrie's finally like, just admit that you don't like him. And Miranda's like, fine, I don't fucking like him. So you don't go to Paris with him. Carrie, I love you. Miranda gets in that last... No, no. then she was like, you're living in a fantasy or some shit, right? I like how we should do the whole scene just from memory. <laughs> We need to get really lit and then just from our memory do... (laughs) The entire episode. (laughs) It'll be like our uh, version of... Remember that Michel Gondry film, Be Kind, Rewind? (laughs) Where they accidentally erase all the VHSs so they have to re-record the films from their memory. (laughs) Uh, I know how we'll be spending the apocalypse. Oh, oh my God, yes. When the HBO Max servers are destroyed. (laughs) We'll just have people over... (laughs) And act out scenes. We need to get Dan Clay's Carrie wig now. <laughs> Don't ask why we need it, Dan. We just need it. Well, Dan Clay's Carrie wig is the best because he hand-painted in the roots himself. Like, you can't just go and buy this wig at a store. You can't just go and buy it at Ricky's if that still existed. Or does it still exist? Someone let us know. I guess we have to go back to New York and just retrace our steps from our 20s and be like, is that still there? Is that still there? Anyway, uh, in the commentary, Michael Patrick King says that there was a debate, there was yet another debate in the writer's room of whether to end the episode after their fight, which I think is the bolder move, or to do this very insane <laughs> Dr. Zhivago-inspired slay scene in Central Park. Yeah. Which is somehow... I... Yeah, there's no dialogue. It's just carrying a fur hat on a sled with Petrovsky in the snow. Yeah, there's her her voiceover saying something where she's like, I didn't even ask how he got a sleigh in the middle of Central Park. I, in my memory, I was like, oh, someone's operating it. But no, he is. No, he's not driving this. Yes. My memory is like, there's got to be laws against that. I know. He's Petrovsky, man. (laughs) He just went back to Studio 54, grabbed Bianca Jagger's aging horse, (laughs) and then hitched hitched a carriage to it. 
I think that the show has one of the best series finales. I think it's certainly in the top 10 of series finales of shows, but... Top five, I think. All right, top five. But I think it's such a dangerous message that Carrie's value is tied to the fact that she's with someone. Like, in rewatching this episode, I was like, wow, this is really dangerous rhetoric. Like, she says at the funeral, ladies, if you are single after a certain age, there is nowhere to go but down. Yeah. No, it does kind of negate the central thesis of the entire show. And but by the way, is that Carrie's last column? Because she says she quits the <laughs> the column. Okay, that's dark. Like, is her last column about Lexi Featherston? She, and, <laughs> and she's like, like, I have no choice but to be a 30-something sing- sugar baby to my Russian daddy. By the way, I'd watch that show. If that were the show, I would, I would certainly watch it. I suppose as we wrap this episode up, it makes sense to bring up the fact that Candace Bushnell and Darren Starr, who were friends with each other, Darren Starr discovered and brought Candace's column and the book to the show Sex and the City's vision was that Carrie would remain single. And it was Michael Patrick King's vision, who took over as showrunner, that the end game was big. Yeah, Candace and Darren Starr were not involved in how the show ended. And now we're unwinding in this, I imagine, new miniseries, what it's like to marry a toxic person that you can't get over in, in your 30s. I guess that's the lesson. Yeah. I'd give well, them- now Carrie's finally living Enid's life, right? Like, I guess. A single 50-something woman living in a fabulous Upper East Side apartment oh, alone. But Carrie would be that annoying bitch who then writes an article that was like, you know what? It's actually great. Well, I mean, that wouldn't be annoying. That would be... That would be annoying considering, again, what I imagine what Carrie's last column was for the New York Star, which was like, ladies, if you are still single, I have to tell you, please find whatever your man, whatever, whoever you're dating at this man and just lock him down. Yeah, it's so rude because she's like, not only, she's like, not only like, can I not be single anymore and there's no hope for you guys, but I can't even live here anymore. Fuck this city. I'm out. Anyway, this has been fun. (laughs) and until next time i guess send us dms of what episodes you would like us to do we're gonna try to do this once a month yeah yeah we're upping our um sex in the city recaps because you guys love you guys so like much. them more than our normal episodes <laughs> anyway guys this was a lot of fun thanks for listening guys all right see you next week bye bye fucking geriatrics <laughs>